progress. Hello, my fellow fallible humans. My name is Tanya McIntyre, and this is the Red Roof Recovery Show. Red Roof Recovery, a program to soften the path of recovery from substance and behavioral addictions. I'm joined today by my partner, my husband of very many years now, over three decades we've been together, and he has stuck by me through my addictions and my recovery because uh, for sure, physical recovery is just the first step, and then the mental recovery is an ongoing process. So welcome, Lancelot. I call you Meister Lancelot. Thank you so much for being here with me. Uh, not sure I would have persevered with this uh, without you stepping, stepping on the stage, so to speak, with me to uh, help alleviate some of my anxiety about showing up to do this every week. Well, I'm glad I could help. I'll be some help. Yes, absolutely. You're, you're more than some help because you are also bringing in the family and friends perspective of uh, addiction. Because for every one person suffering with substance use disorder or alcohol use disorder, any harmful substance or behavior, uh, there are always five family and friends who are also affected. So you are bringing the family mm -hmm. perspective mm -hmm. into uh, a much needed discussion for sure is what can the family member do to help someone who is suffering with alcohol use disorder substance use disorder or any other harmful substance and behavioral activity because of course uh, activity addictions are way up now too especially after two and a half three years of uh, the pandemic people being isolated in their time and uh, yeah, becoming addicted now to activities is a big thing as well. But today we're getting off topic again, because today we're going to be talking about uh, trauma as the driver of addiction. Yes. Yeah. Um, that's one thing I've noticed being around you and other people with addictions is that there, there seems to be a common... Um, narrative of trauma um, that facilitates the the starting of the use of the um, the substance or behavior I mean in my own case I had two occasions where I uh, I started down that road uh, one was where I I got divorced uh, the divorce wasn't that much of a trauma for me but losing my children was they, they would have focused my life and suddenly I had no focus and I started to drink very heavily and uh, I was younger and very vain and that's what saved me that time it was my vanity uh, I literally spent 10 years working out seven eight nine times a week cycling to sculpt a body that I thought would be what I wanted and in four months of drinking every day to excess I wrecked my whole body and I woke up one morning looked in a mirror and thought I don't want to look like this anymore so I managed to stop and on the second occasion was uh, when my father died and I had no one to talk to about it uh, you were in your own uh, addiction and you didn't particularly like my father so i sought help to talk about it because again i started to drink to stop the pain 
of the loss. So I can understand that I would say most addiction comes from a point of trauma. Some type of trauma, early life, and it doesn't have to be early life. I was in my 20s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I often say that. Um, you've heard me talk about Dr. Gabor Matte. He's the Canadian doctor. He worked on Vancouver's east side for about a dozen years. And Vancouver's east side is said to be the most uh, chronically addicted and densely populated uh, place for chronically addicted people in North America, if not the world. So he saw dozens and dozens of people every day who were challenged with substance and behavioral addictions. And he said the one common denominator was trauma. Mm -hmm. And he said not necessarily uh, childhood trauma. You know, we're seeing military personnel now, frontline workers in general affected by uh, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, So the trauma can come at any stage of life, probably more common uh, to be associated with childhood, for sure. For me, um, you know, I often talk about uh, the dismantling of the family unit. You know, we could have hours of discussion on that alone. I remember um, being in mainstream media as a broadcaster for many years, and we were encouraged uh, to... So I was a, basically a news reader, a talking head, and we were encouraged to um, share some of our personality on the radio after the newscast. So I would do this banter back and forth with the morning host. And that the day before, there was a situation where I was stopped at a red light at an intersection waiting for the light to change. And there was a group of uh, young teenagers, probably 12, 13, and they were in a group and that's where a lot of the bravado comes from when people are in groups together. Mm-hmm. And this one kid uh, hawked up this big hawker and blew it up into the air. So it landed on my windshield. It was disgusting. And I put the windshield washer on just as the light was changing so I could get out of that environment. Uh, but I said, you know, 20 years ago, What would have happened is I would have parked my car and walked over to the group and grabbed that kid by the sleeve of his jacket and brought him home for some accountability, taken him home. Um, But you can't do that anymore because there's nobody home because we women have bought into this idea that we can have it all. We can have the career and the family. And it's not true. If we choose a career, our family is going to suffer. And if we choose the family, then Clearly, you know, we don't go as far ahead in our career as we would like. Well, just with that one sentence, (laughs) there, I was surprised there wasn't a lynch mob waiting for me uh, after my shift at the radio station that day because the telephone lines lit up. Uh, My boss called me in to the office uh, later that day and said, you need to make a public apology. And I had no choice. My, My job was on the line. I had to apologize for something that uh, I think a lot of people are thinking, but they just don't have the courage to say because it's not a politically correct thing to say. But I do believe that uh, for me, the fact that our mother left very, when we were very young, uh, I had to step into a co-parenting role with my single father who was struggling with his own addictions. And, you know, he, he was working 12, 14 hours a day as well. And, 
trying to uh, raise a baby sister who was just barely out of diapers when our mother left. So that is not a good environment to grow up in when you're raising a, a child as a child and there's no support. My father was doing the best he could, but emotionally he was just not available. So my addictions, I believe, started from that childhood trauma of being abandoned by my mother and not being emotionally equipped or mature enough to handle the responsibilities that I was given. And then um, moving into my teens, you know, I, I had discovered early on, probably from age 11, that uh, drinking could alleviate some of these heightened emotions I was having. So that's where it started very young that I discovered that alcohol could alleviate some of this emotional pain I was feeling. And then when I was 15 and still a virgin, I was dating a guy and I was what we are now referring to as date raped. Uh, he, you know, he raped me. I, I said no repeatedly and I was forced to have sex. And that traumatized me um, well into my adulthood, as you know, um, you and I, when we were married, uh, sex for me, it was very traumatizing. I, I was not a sexual person because of that trauma. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't enjoy sex. I didn't particularly want to have sex. I didn't feel sexy. I felt traumatized. So that's something that stayed with me for a lifetime. And I, I think for sure I was self-medicating. Uh, just that those are the two main traumas that come to mind. And, you know, there are people dealing with a lot deeper traumas that they are self-medicating with drugs and alcohol, for sure. So let's, because I'm, I'm getting two things here, if we can dig into it. One is that the trauma of the child bringing themselves up or with just peer support, like minimal supervision. The latchkey kids, I think they, we used to refer to them years ago. Yes. Yeah. Mum dad didn't get home until two hours after the kids had got home. Right. Or, and we're, what are the kids doing during that time? They are with their peer groups and getting direction from their peer group, which is where you don't want to be as an adolescent, getting direction. Okay. So um, I can always remember when I was younger, I, I used to read Mad Magazine. And there was a there was a cartoon in there and you had two kids in a, in a pinball hall. This is how old I am. <laughs> and... There's the one cool kid with a leather jacket and that, and there's this other just normal kid. And the normal kid looks at the clock and says, oh, it's almost 10.30, I've got to be home. And the cool kid says, why have you got to be home? And he said, well, my parents like me to be in at 10.30. He said, you're going to go along with that? You know, answer you to parents and all this luck. Anyway, why do they want you home? And the, the, cool, the non-cool kid said, well, I think it's because they love me. And the cool kid gives this look and says, I wish I had someone to love me. Now, not having someone at home to be available is a type of trauma, I would say. Absolutely. When you have a problem. So are we, are we breeding generations of people who quite possibly are more prone to addiction? In my experience, yes, because I've, now I've been working in this field long enough to know uh, that there, there is a direct correlation to trauma, normally childhood trauma, teenage trauma, uh, that follows you into adulthood and uh, the inability to manage emotions in a healthy way is absolutely 
one of, and then of course you got the biological vulnerability as well, right? I believe it's a dopamine deficiency to begin with. Um, We're probably born that way. And that's part of uh, what exacerbates the addiction, I think. Yeah, but I don't think everyone. I think there is situational. Situational and circumstantial, absolutely, yeah. And the second question I've got, I'm, I'm wondering if in the modern era, where since I would say women start to really get into the workplace in the 80s, 90s, Mm-hmm. Oh, I remember my, my graduating class um, of 1979 when I was in high school and didn't know what I wanted to be at 18 years old. And I had failed grade 10, so I repeated grade 10, managed to make it to grade 12. And the science teacher said, so I guess all you girls who haven't found yourselves a husband yet will be going on to university. Now, of course, the teacher would never get away with saying anything like that now to a classroom. But, you know, on reflection, it was true. All of my friends were going on to university to take uh, generally a, a, an arts degree, a Bachelor of Arts degree. And I'm thinking, well, that's just a continuation of high school. And I hated high school. So I thought I don't want to go into debt for a continuation of high school. Mm-hmm. And they were going to party and, uh, you know, have sex and, yeah, maybe find a husband for sure. And I had done uh, a lot of partying and drinking in high school. I wasn't interested in continuing that and having to pay for it as well. <laughs> so I went on to, uh, to take my, I think I, I earned $600 in gift, gifts money from uh, friends and relatives for my graduation. And I took that money and I got a one-way ticket from Cape Breton, Nova Scotia to Vancouver, BC. And it was, one is a very memorable trip of what I remember when I wasn't drunk. I think I was drunk for most of the prairies, but I guess I didn't miss much. <laughs> oh, I, I like the prairies. Yes, I you thought, did. I actually I lived vicariously nice. through you through, through when you took that trip. I'm glad I got those pictures of your trip. But the, um, the thing I was trying to get to the bottom of was since women, I'm wondering prior to women getting into the rat race of the workforce were most, especially alcohol addictions. Did it affect men more than women, for one thing? Hmm. And is the stre- is that trend changing? And could it be because, I mean, trying to juggle family, financial obligations, work friendships, relationships can be traumatizing, Mm -hmm. can be overwhelming. And since everyone's bought into this, and it's not really, well, nowadays, it's not really buying into, in our current economy, you basically need two incomes, especially if you're going to have children. Mm -hmm. So we've, you know, we have the two income family that are trying to do cram a week's worth of caregiving and self-care into two days on a weekend, mm-hmm. if you like. yeah. which I would think would exacerbate the escapism that you are, you are afforded by alcohol or drugs or a certain behaviour. Mm-hmm. Do you think this could be a driver as well? Or am I totally at lunch that it was 50-50 prior to women getting to the workforce? That's a good question. Um, I'm not not even sure I've ever looked at numbers from 
you know, how it affects male, female, I'm, I'm generally focused on the entire number. So that's an interesting question. I don't know. Because there are more um, single parent families that are being led by the, the male part portion of that relationship too. I'm, I meet a lot of single dads now, whereas in the 80s and 90s, it wasn't that popular. Oh, I, I, I was told by uh, the lawyer because even my ex, uh, ex-mother-in-law ex said that I was a far better parent than my ex-wife. I used to look after kids more. I used to read them stories before bed. I had strange shifts. So I'd have five-day blocks where I'd, you know, I'd take them to girl guides and dance classes. And, you know, I, I was basically the main parent, really. And uh, when I saw my lawyer uh, and my wife had had an affair and, you know, was with someone else. And I said, I wanted the kids. And she said, is she a bad mother? I said, no, she doesn't beat them or anything like that, but I'm a better parent. And she said, that doesn't matter. No. I remember my dad going through that in the 60s. Well, well no, I shouldn't say the 60s. Um, so I was, uh, yeah, so 1969, I was nine when she left. So he would have been, I think they, they were trying to reconcile for a couple of years. And then they ended up in court and dad pretty much had custody for all of that time. And he was fighting for custody. And it's un he said, unless you can, you can prove that the mother is unfit. Yes. Um, and, you know, even though there was lots of evidence that she was. He nine times, well, I think 10 times out of 10, the, the judge would always rule in favor of the mother. It didn't really matter what the mother did. I think that's changing though. Um, yeah, it seems to be. But is that because uh, because the law is changing, or is it is it because um, you know again uh, has modern society built into like you know where women think their career is more important than than the family, mm. so splitting up, and they are you know have a really good job, and the child's going to get in the way. Is it better to let dad look after him because I need to get to the next level of my career? Well, I think the deeper question we should be asking is why, because uh, I know even from the 80s, uh, divorce rates were 50%, and that hasn't changed in all these decades. You know, it's still hovering around the 50% mark. So, you know, would, would you make uh, a wager on a bet if you had a 50% chance of losing, I don't know. People tend to be doing that. We did um, because you know we we wanted to demonstrate our commitment to the relationship with marriage. But the reality is that fifty percent of marriages fail. Why is that? Stress. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, and stress, stress is the driver of uh, most chronic illness for sure, including addiction yeah well stress a lot of people um and if you look at adverts on tv if you look at society as a whole if you're stressed out you know the whole thing thank god thank god it's friday i can have a, a glass of wine or a beer mm -hmm. uh you know if you've got a problem you go down the bar with your friends and you you talk out and get drunk right so the stress seems to 
buy into the notion that you need a drink to mm -hmm. mitigate that. Or, you know, a drug that, you know, you partake in with some friends. Something that takes you out of that moment. Yeah. Because, because stress is, again, it's another form of trauma. Too much stress. I mean, we all need a certain amount of stress as a driver in our life to get things done. Yeah. I mean, you and your sister and a lot of people I know thrive on the stress of leaving things to the last minute. Yeah. Mm. Because that motivates you. If you have to have it done, that's a form of stress, but it motivates you. So that's an okay type of stress. But the overwhelming stress that, you know, if you're in a relationship and you've got kids and you've got money stress, you've got kids stress, you've got relational stress, and the stress becomes overwhelming, that's a form of trauma. Yeah, and we're passing that trauma on to the kids, for sure. Yeah, yeah, because, and also there, there's the pattern of, that I've, I noticed when I was working a lot of hours with a lot of guys is that on the day you got off or maybe the day and a half that you got off, you basically went home and sat on the couch and drank. Basically. Yeah, you want to zone out. Mm -hmm. to, to zone out. Now, if you've got a family and you're working as the hours that I used to do and you're doing that and your wife is working as well because you need the two incomes and she's going to start feel resentful even though you're putting in 60 or 70 hours a week but then you're coming home and getting drunk that's not the relationship so that fosters a whole bunch mm. of stuff oh, yeah. but again it's all down to that that anxiety that resentment is again that's a trauma in your life that pushes you towards right to suppress it Yes. So now that I'm in recovery and I'm learning ways to manage my emotions without drugs and alcohol, um, the daily motto. So I, I need a structured routine in my life for sure. So in smart recovery, self-management and recovery training, we learn cognitive therapies to learn how to manage our thoughts, feelings, moods, and behaviors. We learn how to deal with urges. We learn how to uh, create a healthy, balanced lifestyle, whatever that, whatever that looks like for you, because we're all different. Um, so I think the managing of the emotions part, and now I can't remember what point I was trying to make. Well, I think the point you're trying to make is that, you know, the, the use or behavior that you're indulging is, is a symptom of a bigger problem. Mm. And like, like medicine nowadays, you go into a doctor and you say, I've got this ache and pain. They say, take this pill. Well, they're not really looking at what's causing the pain. We'll just get rid of the pain. Right. So alcohol, yeah, alcohol and drugs are the symptoms. So uh, we're neglecting to deal with the cause. So what's yeah. the cause? That's what Dr. Gabor Mate says. He said, stop asking why the addiction and start asking why the pain. Yeah. So what I've on the journey I've been with you would uh, listen to you or do all your smart stuff the cognitive behavioral tools that you use are there to get to the root cause of why you need to indulge in this behavior or or substance mm -hmm. why, why is it that you feel like you need to if a happens 
you need to reach out for B and indulge to get away from A. Because it's easier. It was always easier for me to take a drink or pop a pill than it was to deal with the heightened emotion I was having at the time, which normally involved uh, things that were beyond my control. So now I'm learning what's to stay focused on what's within my control and what's beyond my control. That's huge. Those unconditional acceptance pieces that I was learning or continue to learn, I should say that I was introduced to in SMART, there's unconditional self-acceptance, unconditional other acceptance, and unconditional life acceptance. Because I had lots of acceptance conditionally on myself, others, and life. Getting to a place where I was accepting myself unconditionally, accepting others unconditionally, letting go of my resentments, um, and accepting life unconditionally, that, that was huge for me. I used the metaphor of uh, treating my recovery path and my mind like a garden. So I'm sowing good seeds literally by uh, keeping myself immersed in good people, places and things, keeping myself surrounded with good people, places and things. And then I'm weeding that garden and my mind by avoiding the people, places and things that will take me to places I don't wanna go or being someone I don't wanna be, becoming someone I don't wanna be. So as long as I stay focused on what's within my control and work at that for at least 10 minutes a day, I've managed to sustain my recovery, which I had been unable to do in 12-step programs. So there's something to be said about cognitive therapies for me. Don't, they don't work for everybody either. I think the key is to, the key is one of my favorite um, acronyms is uh, keep educating yourself. Keep looking for something that resonates with you. And once you find that, then you want to grab onto it with both hands, keep doing more of it. And you only have to do it for 10 minutes a day. Recovery doesn't take long. It takes a persistent willingness to exert consistent efforts to help yourself. That's all. But it also, you need to get a point. I, I think the common term is reach bottom to realize that you need to do something because you're, you realize your life is out of control. Well, and everybody's bottom is different. You know, that I'm not even sure I like that term, rock bottom. Yeah, I don't know what other term to use because I've never heard yeah. of It's the catalyst. What is your catalyst for change? Yeah, yeah. So when you reach that point, you, the catalyst, something happens and you think, oh my God, like, yeah, I really need to change this then you're going to look for tools. Absolutely. Smart recovery being one of them. Mm -hmm. And 12 step programs. I, you know, we, we were at a 12 step meeting for uh, somebody yes, yesterday, last night, um, who was celebrating one year of abstinence. And I love 12 steps for the peer support. And the fact that they do that for people after one year of abstinence, we all get together and have a party with cake. <laughs> like, who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want that? Cake. The opposite of addiction is connection. So I love 12 steps. I love their slogans. I love, I, I love the tenets of 12 steps. It's be honest, right? And you need to be honest with yourself if you're going to have any success in recovery. And with others. It needs mm -hmm. to be Absolutely. So what's the solution, Snookamookums? Well, I think that's what we'll talk about next week. Tools. 
and solutions. Mm -hmm. We've highlighted, I think, the problem, which is trauma, mm -hmm. over the main part, and uh, where trauma comes from, mm -hmm. to an extent, and all different types of trauma. Yeah. And maybe next time we can talk about what you used and what other tools are out there to to get to the bottom of trauma and try and sort out how to live with it. Excellent. In the meantime, I highly recommend that you look at the Smart Recovery website, smartrecovery.org. You can get lots of powerful tools there. Um, I have written a couple of books that I love to talk about uh, for my philosopher dad, because he was a, an extraordinary man who deserves a legacy of greatness. Uh, the first one was Mindful Wisdom from my philosopher dad, Sage Advice from a Single Father. And then during the pandemic, I wrote book two for him, Daily Wisdom from my philosopher dad. And I basically set this one up for my own sanity and sobriety. I set it up as a journal. So every day you have an inspirational saying that you can reflect on because uh, I have found that the power of words is powerful and boy, oh boy, the power of the written word is life transformational. So you can get those at amazon.ca because yes, I am Canadian and I live uh, in beautiful, that Canada's prettiest town, Godrich, Ontario, where you can also get my books at Finchers in the Square. Thank you, Finchers, for carrying my book. And thank you to 98.5 CKWR in Kitchener for continuing to support me in my mission to share my passion for addiction recovery with others. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And thank you, my beautiful husband, for your ongoing support. Yeah, I love you. I love you too. And thank you all for listening. Remember to talk to yourself like you talk to your best friend. May the force be with you. And remember, you are the force. <laughs>